in 2 Kings chapter 4 today. If you want to open in your Bible or you can follow along on the screen. Uh, usually I have one of these guys read the scripture for me when it's long like this because I have a rule. And the rule is, is that the scripture reading doesn't count against my sermon time. <laughs> and so this is a long passage. And so Andrew should have graciously read this for me so that you wouldn't be confused about how much time I actually get. So we're in 2 Kings 4 and verse 8, one of the great stories of Elisha. And so we're going to read it together. Hear the word of God. One day Elisha went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him and he, said to, and he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, well, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son. And her husband is old. And he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. <clears throat> and she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind her and, and went out. And then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may go quickly to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It's neither the new moon or the Sabbath. And she said, all is well. And then the, or all is shalom is what it says, all is peace. And then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain of the man of God, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and Jehovah has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And he said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. 
If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. And then the mother of the child said, as Jehovah lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her and Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. And therefore he returned to meet him and told him, the child is not awakened. And when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to Jehovah. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. Then she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then he, she picked up her son and went out. And thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stand forever. I, I'm, a, I'm in my early 60s. I've been in the church all my life in India. We call that a born Christian. Most Christians are not born Christians, but there are some. There's multi-generational families. And you may have heard Vijay say that's what they're working for in their movement, that churches don't die when the pastor dies, but that the church would live on just like it does in the PCA. And so I've been in the church all my life, and uh, for over 40 years I've been serious about my relationship with Jesus. There was a period in my teen years when I was pretty ugly and you didn't want to be around, but Jesus loved me anyway because he loves us ugly. And... Uh, and, and, and as I've come to know him better, I, I've awakened to an incredible sense that our God is unpredictable, that you really don't know what he's going to do from day to day. And I, that may bother you. I find it extremely satisfying. And, and what I mean is that God is too big and, and too mighty to put in a box of categories that my mind can think up. His love is more outrageous than anything we can imagine. His fury is scarier than I want to think about. And his ways are slowly becoming my ways. It's pretty good. You know, on the one hand, my car brakes work when I push the pedal. and my, I, I, Oxygen fills my lungs when I breathe. And the seasons change year after year. So in that sense, God is very dependable and reliable and steadfast uh, and his purposes are very clear. He, he is relentlessly pursuing the fame of the name of Jesus. And at the same time, he's serious about the sanctification and growth of, of his children here at, at our church and, and, and other churches as well. But, but on the other hand, I'm never sure what he's going to do next to bring those things about and to enrich my spirituality and to grow me up in Christ Jesus. Sometimes he fills my cup with pleasure so intense, I can only laugh and find myself in worship and adore him. And then other times it feels like he squeezes so hard that I think I'll burst and all I can do is run to him one more time moaning for help without even knowing what words to say. And I find security in both. 
Because if God were completely predictable, then he wouldn't be God. If you could figure it out, then he's not God. And if God wasn't about the business of stripping me of my idols and my self-worship, then he wouldn't be gracious or loving or saving. And if God didn't play, play out my hand so that I could feel the heights and the depths of love and emotion and a relationship, well, then, then I wouldn't be made in his image, and nor would you. So this week in our prophet story, we've just met her. We meet a wealthy woman who has no needs. Well, not any that she's aware of at first anyway. So not until she meets the unpredictable God. So I have three points to share with you this morning. Three things I want to show you about the gospel. The first is an unpredictable gift. You know, our story takes place in the northern part of the northern kingdom called Israel. Later, this would be called Galilee, and, and, and this city, Shunem, is not too far from Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. And it mentions Mount Carmel, which is on the Mediterranean coast, right on the sea, a little mountain right there. About, and about, if you go 30 miles east and go inland, going due east, you'll find the Sea of Galilee. So Israel's not that big. It's about 30 miles wide there. And halfway in between is the little town of Shunem. And this is farming country. It's in, the, it's in the fertile valley of Jezreel. And as the chief prophet for God, for Israel in the north, Elisha would have traveled about this country on a regular basis, teaching, renewing, discipling, correcting. Sometimes he was in the capital city of Samaria doing business with the king and the important folk and then the, and the other people that are in the palace. And, and then at other times he'd be at Mount Carmel on the coast praying, thinking, getting away for quiet and refreshment with God, overlooking the sea. And in between he would travel to various communities and villages teaching and, and preaching the word and discipling the prophets and because of unbelief at this stage of Israel's life, because of unbelief and apostasy in the royal family among the kings and among the priesthood, true religion had, had fallen to the, to, uh, pretty hard and it was left only to the Bible schools of the prophets to maintain. So it, it was common for the prophets to, to gather with the faithful weekly on Sabbath day and then monthly on new moon festival each month to worship and teach the scriptures. So in his traveling ministry, Elisha would be in Shunem from time to time. And while there, he met a wealthy family in the local church, in the local synagogue. And, and, and they took it upon themselves to feed him and his servant. We don't even know their name. And the church in Israel was in such rotten shape that you had to be really careful even about these traveling prophets, for some of them were wolves in sheep's clothing, either teaching false doctrine and heresy, or they were hirelings in service to the king, and still others were merely trying to get out of work and make some money as an itinerant preacher. But, but after some time, this family had become convinced that they, they could trust Elisha, and Elisha had learned to trust them. That's what she says. She, had, she says in verse 9, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. So she gets her husband to build a small room on the roof as a retreat. This is a common thing that you see in the Middle East and in Asia, is that the, 
is that the family doesn't grow out like we do in West Georgia. The family grows up because there's no room. Your neighbors are right next door, so you just build going up. So they built him a nice little guest hat cottage on the roof. And now he can do more than just eat when he passes through. Now he can stay and, and rest and study and have a little oasis. So the desire comes to Elisha after some time to give a blessing. We read that, to give some kind of blessing and reward to this lady for her hospitality. Here's what Jesus says about the prophets in Matthew 10 and hospitality. Whoever receives you, he says this to the apostles, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. So often these rewards for welcoming the word of God into your house is a spiritual blessing for your house, but sometimes it's a practical blessing as well. So what do you give as a reward to a woman who has everything? It's kind of like what upper middle class Presbyterians go through at Christmas time when they try to figure out what to give each other when we have no needs. What, what are you going to do? After 40 years of marriage, Sherry and I have decided to quit buying each other anniversary presents because we don't have any needs and we can't figure out what to do. And birthdays have become like that as well. We're always trying to listen. You got to listen really close and maybe you'll get some clues. You know, those, that's good for your marriage. But it's hard, isn't it? Because you got everything already. And so... Um, so she has no financial needs, so Elisha looks at his own resources. He knows people in high places, and, and maybe he can help. So he sends Gehazi to offer that help, but she has no need for that because she loves God. She's wealthy. She's at home in her settled country estate with, with her many servants and land where, she can, uh, where they can reap. And, and she has her church friends in town. And she leads the women's Bible study, so she doesn't have any needs. So she sends back work to the prophet. I have no needs. But she's wrong. She's barren, and her husband's older than David Hildebrand. <laughs> it's... it's uh, it, 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 it's sometimes hard to imagine in our modern world what it means to be barren. Because, you know, we have IVF. We have all these medical procedures. They can test the man. They can test the woman. They can figure it all out and help you. And almost anybody can have a baby. Not everybody, but almost anybody these days. And to be barren and to have no child in Israel is a horrible stigma. And, and worse still, to have no son, no heir, it, it's terrible. But you see, our nameless lady, she joins a long line of biblical heroines who are barren. God loves to elevate the weak and the lost and the little and the lonely and the people who don't seem like they can get there on their own. He loves to do this. And though she's not feeling it, God is feeling it for her. And, and you, you remember Sarah, Abram's wife. Sarah was barren until the Lord gave her Isaac. And Rebekah was barren for 20 years until the Lord gave her Esau and Jacob. 
And Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, was barren, and she cried out to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And then the Lord gave her Joseph. And he ended up being the leader of the whole world. And then the wife of Manoah, you probably don't remember who she is, the wife of Manoah was barren until an angel visited her and the Lord gave her Samson, the strong man. And then there's Hannah in, in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. And I love what her husband says to her. She's barren. She has a sister wife, remember? And uh, that sister wife has five kids and she got none. And there's constant harassment and harangment going on in there. And so her husband says, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? And of course the answer is, no, 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 you don't. I want a son, and I'm going to pray until the Lord gives me a son. And Jehovah gave Hannah the great prophet Samuel. And how about Elizabeth? She became the mother of John the Baptist. In each of these cases, the Lord, the son the Lord gave these barren women, had a lasting impact on the nation of Israel, and they were important men with great significance for God's people and God's kingdom. But here's what I love about this story. The gift of God to this woman has no national significance. It's in the Bible so that we would know God. We don't even know her name or the name of her husband or the name of her son. The Lord gave her a great gift simply because he's a great God and she loves him. Isn't that cool? You don't have to be somebody to have your needs met by the Lord. 1 Timothy 6 says that God gives us riches and blessings for our enjoyment. God is always pursuing his own pleasure, and he loves to fulfill our cups with, his, with that pleasure. He's so good. It's only the gospel of the serpent that makes God out to be stingy. Don't you listen to that. So Elisha gives her a son. That's a pretty significant miracle. And though she says she's comfortable and she has no needs, look at how she reacts when he says it. In verse 16, she says, No, my Lord, O oh man of God, do not lie to your servant. In other words, don't get my hopes up. Don't disappoint me. Because I've been disappointed already. And obviously she has secretly despaired over her barrenness and she's covered it up with other things. And and fears that Elisha is lying. But you see, the word of God doesn't lie. And if you get nothing out of this story, get that. The word of God doesn't lie. And the unimaginable becomes reality in God's world. So that takes us to the second thing that I wanted to show you in this story. Not only the unpredictable gift but the unpredictable trial. Notice in this story that though the woman thinks Elisha's offer of a son is incredible, the Bible doesn't react that way. It doesn't go into any great details, no big deal, very matter-of-fact storylines. It simply says she conceives and gives birth to a son. God does what God says he will do. That's the way it is in the kingdom of God. So the gift grows, and when he was old enough, he went out with his father to watch the reapers bring in the crop. And, you know, we, I have a nurse, so we talk about these things in our house. Sherry thinks he got heat stroke, and so he was out there too long without something to drink. It would have been the middle of summer, so it's hot, and his head is killing him. So his father sends him back to his mother, and he dies. 
Can you imagine her grief? Every once in a while, I try to imagine what the pain would be like to lose my wife or my kids or my grandkids. And each time I think about it, the pain starts to come rushing to my head and my heart and I have to let it go unless I burst. I don't know if you ever think about that, what it would be like to be alone. And yet everybody experiences death and grief. We've even lost a grandchild in our own family. And that grief is hard and it's real. So if just thinking about it hurts, the, the real pain must be crushing, right? But instead of weeping and moaning, she does an odd thing. She doesn't tell anybody. It's really strange. Instead, she sets her sights on the one who gave the gift. That's where her hope lies. So she lays the, she lays the boy on Elisha's bed, persuades her husband to let her go to see Elisha, even though he doesn't get it. And she expresses her faith. It's all right. It's shalom. It's peace. And so she rushes to Mount Carmel, which is 15 miles away. And she gives Gehazi the same answer. It's all right. It's shalom. It's peace. And I don't know if she believed Elisha could resurrect her son, though she might have known that Elijah had done it. And so maybe Elisha could do it too. Therefore, she hopes he would. But what's obvious is that she went to a Mount Carmel to get one answer to one question. And it's in verse 28. And she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, don't deceive me? And that's the question of the ages, isn't it? Is Jehovah really mean? Is he a hard God? Is he tight-fisted? Does he give us blessings simply to snatch them back at a moment of weakness? Does God make us glad all the while planning for our pain? Does he lift us up to drop us down hard? You know, when I worked as an engineer at the Harris Corporation over 30 years ago, and one of my best friends was a man who had given up on the church and on God. He'd been raised in the church, but he'd given up. And I spoke with him several times about the gospel, and we were engineers, so of course it was all logic talk. And, and, and one day he said to me, Jim, you've convinced me. The resurrection is true, and Jesus is the Christ, but I can't love a God who allows so much suffering. And that's the rub, isn't it? Is Jehovah meant to be feared like an evil tyrant because he can steal the lives of our loved ones at a whim? Or is his sovereign hand and grace a reason for love and faith and trust? That's the question. Because that's what our life demands. That that question be answered. And the answer depends a lot, a lot on what you see when you look in the mirror. If you see a sinner who deserves no good thing apart from God's grace, if you see a traitor to the law and, and, and the way of God who deserves maybe to suffer, if you see yourself as a recipient of God's mercy and justifying grace, God's sovereignty is a reason for love. If you look in the mirror and you got a craggly old face like Chuck Colson. You know there must be grace somewhere, right? But if you see yourself as a good person, 
and perhaps more righteous than your neighbor. Maybe you're smart or athletic or good-looking, and the good outweighs the bad, and you're undeserving of pain, as, as my friend who was saying this to me felt. Then God's sovereignty is a reason to turn away. He's just a whimsical tyrant. He's great, but he's not good. It all depends on what you see when you look in the mirror. Do you need grace or do you have no needs? That's the question. But that doesn't really answer the question, does it? This story is not about how God might treat his enemies. It's about how he treats his friends. In some of these stories, people's needs are easy to see. There's a few verses before this one, verses 1 to 7, about a widow who's at the end. We can see her need easy. But how about this wealthy woman? The first thing I notice is that riches don't prevent catastrophes. Wealth is a black hole if we think it's a shield against pain or sorrow. I had a friend who was a successful lawyer. He was a member of our church in Florida, and he and I were chuckling one day about how bold and risky we had both been in our early 20s. He'd been in campus ministry, and he shared the gospel with anything that moved, and, and life had few complexities, but now times had changed. He was a wealthy lawyer. He had a wife and three kids, and what had changed most for him was that wealth meant that he had things to lose. In college, he had little to lose, but now he had a lot to lose. And he'd even moved his family behind an iron gate, thinking that this would make him safe. And here we are 25 years later, and my friend died two years ago in his mid-60s from cancer. That's horrible. And money didn't save him, because it can't. Here's what Proverbs 18.11 says. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. I, I love the way the NIV says it. They imagine it an unscalable wall. But it was not un an unscalable wall for this woman, was it? Land and servants and a loving husband and even a righteous prophet as a friend has not kept her from catastrophe. Her need is as great as the poor widow's. And if she didn't think she was needy before, she's certainly needy now. And that's the reason for her trial of faith. And that leads us to the third thing I wanted to show you, which is an unpredictable grace. An unpredictable gift, an unpredictable trial, and now unpredictable grace. And the obvious grace in this story, we all cheer, is that she gets her son back alive. That, that part of the story is so glorious. The trial is lifted. The pain is gone. Hallelujah! Her felt need is met, and it is beautiful. But what makes God's grace unpredictable is that he's not interested in simply sanding the surface of our lives so that you can put a little polyurethane on there and make it shine like a pretty table. He is in the business of making us new from the inside out, and that grace is revealed throughout this story. Let me show you. God's grace begins with the presence of the prophet eating at her table and resting in her house. When God's word is that near, God is bound to invade your life, and he invaded hers. 
The man of God, speaking for God, offered her a reward for her faithfulness, something we all want. And how did she respond? She confessed, I have no needs. I don't need anything. You can't help me. That's a dangerous thing to say to the Word of God. That's a dangerous thing to believe, beloved. Because the contentedness that she feels and expresses about her material world, her family life, her church life, that satisfaction is a mirage. She really, desperately wants a son. And that statement also reveals something else. She actually believes that she's already content with the sovereignty of God in her life. She tells herself that she has come to grips with her barrenness and the hole that she feels, and she's filled that hole with something else than satisfaction with God. Oh, she's a trooper, definitely. You don't hear her complain. She's not thinking about it often. She didn't ask the prophet for a miracle. She's good to her servants. She is serving in her local church, and she feeds the preacher often, which is an important point in the story. She's free from the responsibility of mothering, and she's using that freedom for the glory of the kingdom. It's actually a great gift. And, and she doesn't even mention her barrenness when the prophet asks to help her. So the word of God reveals her need. She needs a son. She wants a son. And the son comes, and she has great pleasure and fulfillment for a few years, and then tragedy, and, and what now? Well, verse 27, and when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and the man of God said, leave her alone, for she's in bitter distress, and Jehovah has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she gets there, she's twice confessed her faith, and she's very humble, yet she is understandably in bitter distress. But more importantly, I want you to notice that Jehovah hid the cause from Elisha. At this point, commentators start talking about the limits that the prophet has and how he doesn't know her need and that his staff doesn't raise the boy and they has to lay on him twice. And then they start guessing about seven sneezes. We're not even going to go down that road. Because talking about Elisha's limitations misses the point. This story is about God's grace. It's about resurrection. Instead, there's an important theme woven through our, the stories that we're studying in Elijah and Elisha. Whenever the wicked king of Israel, whether it's Ahab or Ahaziah or Joram, is committing great sin, Jehovah tells the prophet about it makes it very plain, and sends him to the king. On the other hand, whenever one of Jehovah's faithful is in distress, Jehovah hides the need from the prophet and waits for the believer to seek him out. It's an interesting storyline. And the reason is simple. Proverbs eighteen eleven, The wealth of the rich. There it is. Where is it? There it is. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his imagination. Do you know what verse 10 says that's right before it? Let's put that up there, verse 10. The name of Jehovah is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Can I get a hallelujah? No, it wasn't very loud. Like poison being drawn from a... There you go, thank you. Somebody over here gets the blessing. 
like poison being drawn from an open wound. The Lord is drawing the idols from this woman's heart. He does that for us as well. He's hidden the idol from Elisha so that she will seek him out, not vice versa. The Lord doesn't send the prophet to the woman. The Lord sends the woman to the prophet to hear from the word of God so that she will run to Jehovah and confess her sin and her need. She says, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Don't let me down. That's what she says to the word. That's what you say to the Lord. Lord, I'll trust you, but don't let me down. She's confessing. Did you get it? What she's saying here is that it would be better not to have known the joy of having a son if grief is somehow involved. Is that how you think? That it'd be better not to know joy if you're going to have to know grief too? Just like in verse 16 that we read early, she's confessing the sovereignty of God that it perplexes her and and it's not yet leading to adoration. And, And this is a deeply embedded idol for her and for us that adoration only comes if we're completely pleased with what God has done. And what's amazing about this story is that it's God's precious gift of the Son, an unexpected reward for faithfulness that reveals what lies deep within her. What she really, really wanted, she really, really gets, and it's not right still. And is she learning the gospel? I think she is. She confesses her sin in verse 28, and then she confesses her faith. She says in verse 30, as Jehovah lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. That's the faith response the Lord's looking for from us. As Jehovah lives, I will not leave you. She's not letting go of Jehovah no matter what happens. She's not running to the boy to see if he lives while Gehazi goes off on his errand. She's hanging with the word. She's sticking with Jehovah. So God's grace pours out even more abundantly. He answers the prayers of the prophet and gives her boy life. Is she ready for adoration yet? Oh, yes, she is. She calls, so Gehazi calls the Shunammite, and he said, pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And then she picked up her son and went out. That's the end of the story. It's so good. But you see, there is bad news in the middle of that good. The bad news is that disappointment easily drives us to doubt and even despair. Is that true for you? What issues of the sovereignty of God are you dealing with? What trials and disappointments are standing in your way of seeking Jehovah with deep humility and real passion? Are the circumstances of your life causing you to push him away or to cling ever more deeply? How is God's unpredictability keeping you from adoration and driving you to doubt? What, What What hurt and pain is preventing you from falling on your face and calling out, Abba, Father, Daddy, be near me? And the worst news is, is that the disappointment you face may reveal that you're not really a believer at all. You're just like most Georgia fans, good time fans. You see, Georgia Tech fans know how to get through the trials. (laughs) 
And worse, worse still, you may think that you need nothing from God. Is that you? That really you don't need anything. That you're good and steady and steadfast on your own. But you see, there is good news, beloved. In the midst of that bad news, there's incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new, and this story reveals it. For you see, there is still another level of grace revealed in this story. Ralph Davis calls this story a clue episode. Um, He's a great commentator. Real insights from the Lord. And, And he says... In other words, this story not only reveals the mysteries of God's grace, it's a clue to a greater grace still. And you had to know we're going here. This is the grace of the true word of God. Not Elisha, but Jesus. The righteous one. Because you see, just on the other side of the hill from Shunem, there's a little town called Nain. Maybe you've heard of it. And in Luke chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples encounter a funeral there, it's, and it's the only son of a widow. Here we are again. And you see Elisha, you see, see when you look at the story of Elisha, Elisha acknowledged this woman's pain and tried to figure out how to help her, but Jesus tells the woman not to cry at all. That's the most profound part of that story. He says, don't cry. How how outrageous is that? Don't cry. Elisha hurries to the boy and then prays, hoping that Jehovah will do something. But listen to what Jesus does. It's right there in Luke 7. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Is that amazing? Can I get a hallelujah this time? Thank you. God not only heals, God not only fills empty jars with oil, God not only drives demons from people, God raises people from the dead. He invades the grave for his glory and our good. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of disappointment and doubt. And he rose from the dead so that we could be resurrected from our sin and from our disappointment and even from death. That is simply amazing grace. And so I ask you this morning to trust in him and deepen your walk with him and cling with him and his resurrection love. Beloved, does Jesus not know exactly where you are and exactly what you need? Of course he does. Our God delights in amazing, nameless, ordinary people from West Georgia with his good gifts. He sometimes baffles us with his unpredictability. After all, who who wants to worship a God whom they have all figured out? Wouldn't that just be boring as looking at the guide on television and seeing it's the same shows again and again? Aren't you glad the Bible's not like that? But if Jesus can raise the dead, if he had authority to give up his own life and authority to raise it up again, all for our sake and for his glory, then his, his promises, beloved, must be true. That nothing, not trouble, not hardship, neither death nor life, not the present, not the future, not height nor depth, 
that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, our Savior is a strong tower. The righteous run to him and are safe. And that's what we really need. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, what we really need is you. We don't need a fix. And, and uh, we don't need our circumstance changed, though you often delight in doing good for us. What we need from you is you. Lord, so just as you brought the word of God near by bringing the prophet, would you bring the word of God by invading us by your spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ deeply encamped in our hearts and give us the trust to know that when you rose from the dead, we rose as well. Give us that faith, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.